Uh, this last week, I got my, uh, I got my monthly uh, subscription to a uh, magazine called The Atlantic. I was actually just picked on Dr. Holly. He was the one that told me to get this magazine a few years ago, and I really enjoy it because it gives you a wide spectrum of perspectives on the world. And this particular month, it's, uh, you can see the title there, How to Fix the World. And what they did was they went and they interviewed a whole bunch of people, probably about 20 different individuals from all kinds of walks of life, education, business, medicine, across the board. And they said, if you could do one thing to help fix the world, what would it be? Now, I'm not going to give you every answer they gave, but here's some of the things that they mentioned. They talked about changing uh, the Department of Homeland Security to the, harm of, uh, the, the Department of Civil Security. They talked about actually hiring mason, uh, uh, mercenaries to, to fight wars instead of regular armies. They talked about uh, renting your house after you own it. A lot of different things that they suggested. I'm going to give you a couple of quotes of some of the more interesting ones that were suggested, and you'll maybe get the, the, the flavor of this. Tell the truth about colleges. Uh, this author said this, we need to shed more light on how well colleges are educating their students to help prop, uh, prospective students make better decisions and to exert pressure on the whole system to provide better value for money. So the world would be a little bit better place if you had a better uh, opportunity to figure out what college you were going to. End all taxes except one. I, th I like this one. Uh, when you tax income, aren't you punishing people for working hard? You'd think more people would understand that, but for some reason folks struggle with that one. When you tax an asset like land, you're simply encouraging the most valuable use of that land. So get rid of most of the taxes except for the land tax. That was not bad. Here's a really ingenious one. We have real serious problems in the world, and most of them will be solved if we redesign the dollar, right? Okay? Piece of currency is the ultimate symbol. More transparent, rational financial system deserves money that looks the part. With the economy bottoming out, it's time to start from scratch. So if your money looked better, most of your problems in life would be solved. Here's a key one I think is absolutely crucial to the survival of Western civilization. Get rid of the vice presidency. Matthew liked this one. Given that the office is at best worthless and at worst a threat to the republic, why don't we just simply get rid of it? It's just not a full-time job. I don't know if the vice president would like that one. And then here's a really brilliant idea, uh, as if you needed to learn how to drink, okay? Uh, license 18-year-olds to drink, provided they've completed high school and attend an alcohol education course. Mandate alcohol education at a young age. I had alcohol education in high school, but it wasn't taught by any adults, and it probably wasn't quite the right time for that. And then somebody else suggested that we get rid of, um, we get rid of automobile, automobile making in Detroit, which we're on the way to doing anyway, and have them uh, make train engines and train cars. That would solve all of your problems. Now, some serious answers, some silly answers, but it seems to beg the question. And the question is, what went wrong? Why are we having this conversation in the first place? Well, if you look at over 5,000 years of recorded human history, it doesn't take anybody a whole lot of smarts to figure out that we live in a tough world, that we live in a place that's pretty broken. Violence, plagues, disease, pestilence, famine, civil wars, international conflicts, even abuse within our family system, murder, stealing, lying, the list goes on and on with all the things that are wrong in the world. Let me tell you one thing that was wrong with my world yesterday. I went to Pearl Vision because my, uh, my prescription uh, needs to be updated. I'm having trouble seeing my notes, which I think is leading to longer sermons, so you'll all be happy when I get my new glasses. I'm in Pearl Vision, minding my own business with Cindy, and Rhonda, who runs Pearl Vision, 
is, uh, is helping us pick out glasses, and there's a fellow sitting over in the corner. And as we go through this process of picking out glasses, which takes, I don't know, 20 to 30 minutes, she begins having a side conversation with a fellow who I end up finding out his name is Roger. Now, as the conversation goes on, I figure out that they know each other pretty well. I have a keen sense of grasping the obvious. And then eventually, I come to the conclusion that they're husband and wife. What happened was, Rhonda's car that morning, uh, her air conditioning had broken, so Roger, out of the goodness of his heart, drove her all the way to work. They live out in Washington, Missouri. We were in in, uh, Crestwood, or we were in Sunset Hills. Drove her all the way in, and then hung out around there, waited for her to take her back home after work was over. But Roger was not happy. Roger was an unhappy guy. He was pretty displeased because, apparently, on the way to work that morning, now Roger and Rhonda are probably in their early, mid-50s, would be my guess. Rhonda looked at Roger on the way to work and she said, you look like you have a watermelon under your shirt. (laughs) Think about that for just a second. (laughs) To which Roger replied, well, you look like you have one there too. (laughs) Now, they're going into this conversation. I'm trying to buy a pair of glasses and my wife says, oh, my husband's a pastor. He does all kinds of counseling. He can help you guys. (laughs) So we're doing marriage counseling in the middle of Pearl Vision on Saturday afternoon with Roger and Rhonda because Rhonda has made a very unsensitive, insensitive statement about Roger's weight, and he didn't have the sense to just let it go, but he offered some response back there. So there, you know, there's just a lot of problems in the world, even a Pearl Vision. What happened? How did we get in this mess? Well, H.G. Wells, the uh, British author, sociologist, over a century and a half ago, said this. The problem with the world lies squarely at the feet of God. God either has the power to change, and He simply doesn't care, or He cares enough, but does not have the power. Otherwise, you must conclude there is no God. H.G. Wells and a lot of people before him and probably since him have said this problem with the world is that God is in some way flawed. He either made a broken world and He can't fix it, or He made a world, He got it going, and He, and he got busy, and He went somewhere else, and He simply doesn't care. George Carlin, a comedian, famous comedian who passed away just a, a year or so ago, said, if this is the best that God can do, then I don't want to believe in that God. There's something wrong with Him. We all know that the world is a mess. But the question is, where did this evil come from? How did it get started, and who's responsible, and what can be done about it? Well, mankind find it interesting. We're very quick to credit ourselves with all of the advances that we see in the world, whether it's in business, technology, medicine. We name buildings after people who design and come up with great concepts and great ideas to make our world, quote-unquote, a better place. But I'm astounded that we run just as quickly away from human responsibility. We are glad to have the applause We refuse to accept the negative press. We refuse to believe that the problem lies not at God's feet, but perhaps somewhere else, perhaps in our own hearts. Well, Scripture doesn't let us off quite that easy. The Bible suggests that there's a a different answer than Mr. Wells came up with, and we're going to talk about that this morning in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read this passage from two different Bibles. I'm going to read first from my Jesus Storybook Bible that was given to me a couple weeks ago. Uh, and then I'm going to read it out of Genesis chapter 3. So here, the first part of the reading, then I'll get to the second part. Adam and Eve lived happily together in their beautiful new home. And everything was perfect for a while. Until the day when everything 
went wrong. God had a horrible enemy. His name was Satan. Satan had once been the most beautiful angel, but he didn't want to be just an angel. He wanted to be God. He grew proud and evil and full of hate. And God had to send him out of heaven. Satan was seething with anger and looking for a way to hurt God. He wanted to stop God's plan, to stop this love story right there. So he disguised himself as a snake and he waited in the garden. Now, God had given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat from the fruit of that tree, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them, because if you do, you'll think you know everything. You'll stop trusting me. And then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew that if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him. And they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him. Life without him wouldn't be life at all. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked up the fruit and ate some. And Adam did too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. Genesis chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6, hear the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of the tree, any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, there is no question that the world is a broken place. There's no question that the world is filled with all kinds of evil. But there's great debate, Father, whether who's responsible and whether or not there's anything that can possibly be done. Some of us, Father, look to the government. Some of us look to technology. Some of us look to science, to medical breakthroughs. We hope beyond hope that there will be cures that are found for diseases. And yet, Father, generation from generation to generation, the world continues to slowly choke itself to death. Lord Jesus, as we consider this question of evil this morning, we consider this question of of where it came from and how it's impacting our lives, I pray that you would speak your truth into our lives. This is not a pleasant subject, Father. This is not something that I particularly want to talk about on Father's Day. I want to pat everybody on the back and get to the golf course and enjoy my time with my family. Father, this is your holy and perfect word, and if we don't understand the problem, we will never appreciate and embrace 
the solution. Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sin. I am at times a woeful messenger. But I pray that you would speak to your family gathered here this morning. That your truth would ring in our hearts. Whatever brought us here this morning. That we would leave this place knowing more of you. Knowing more of ourselves. And maybe for the first time ever in our lives getting a glimpse of your grace. Lord Jesus, please come and be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. I want to go down a side road real briefly before I get into this conversation between uh, the serpent and Eve, which is where we're going to spend our time this morning. That side road is in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We meet here in Genesis chapter 3, the fourth uh, individual that we've met. The first person we met was God. Uh, Then we've met Adam and Eve. And now we come face to face uh, with uh, with this odd serpent Uh, that Scripture uh, introduces to us, this talking snake. The reason I'm going to stop here for just a second is I don't want to obsess over this, but I know there's probably some people in the the congregation go, well, Pastor, you've already lost me. If if you really want me to believe that there was a talking snake, uh, then we should probably go ahead and close up shop and go on home because that just seems completely uh, impossible. You know, if I can't see it, feel it, touch it, if I can't understand it through empirical evidence, so to speak, then it certainly uh, can't be true. And so some of us this morning probably are saying, I'm too rational to even buy into what you're going to say from this point going forward if you really want me to accept uh, the idea of a talking snake. Uh, I would uh, simply point you to uh, Hamlet. And the first act in Hamlet, William Shakespeare wrote, in that particular act, uh, Hamlet is coming to grips with the fact that he's uh, talking to his father who has departed, who is a ghost, and his buddy Horatio has entered into the conversation, and Horatio is, is bent on uh, human reason. Uh, he's of this idea that if I, can't, if I can't see it, if there isn't some empirical data, if there isn't some logic attached to this, if it can't be explained by natural science, then it obviously is not true. And Hamlet looks at his friend Horatio, and he says, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. I would push back just ever so kindly this morning if you are one of those folks like me who want to see rational data and say, you know what, there's some things that we don't always completely understand. There's some challenges in life that demand that we act on some amount of faith, whether it's in our spiritual life or whether it's in our life and our business or our education. Faith always plays a part. And this passage tells us not so much of a talking snake, which would be the simple way to translate it, I think, but rather not, not a reptile with human ability to talk, but rather with a, with a, uh, with a creature that's been indwelled by a malevolent spirit, evil and cunning, subtly conniving to destroy God's glorious work. It's not so much that a snake and a woman are having a conversation as much as we need to understand that there is more than just physical life. There is spiritual life on this planet. And just because I can't see it doesn't mean it isn't there. Let me take you to Isaiah for just one second real quick. In Isaiah, we get a description which was read uh, in the children's Bible, a little bit about Satan's uh, earlier days when he was cast out of heaven. And Isaiah the prophet, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, How you are fallen from heaven, O star, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will send to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. 
Satan in this particular passage takes on the form of a snake and it seems to fit him well because he has bent in his heart a crafty, a subtle, a conniving way in which now is God's enemy who once sang the praises of God now finds himself in eternal conflict with God, is set out to destroy everything that God has created perfect and beautiful. And that's where this conversation begins. It begins with a fallen angel having a conversation with Eve. And I want to give you four observations about this conversation. The first observation is this. We're going to see in this conversation the turning of generosity to stinginess. Look again at verse 1, but the second half of verse 1 talks about the serpent being crafty. He says to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's as if Satan is saying, you don't say, really. God said that you couldn't eat of any tree whatsoever in the garden. Eve, I'm incredulous about this. I can't believe that God would be so tight-fisted. Why would you trust someone, Eve, whose motivation, obvious, is meanness? who wants to hurt you instead of help you. Satan immediately takes just a a tiny little bit of truth that God had warned them about eating of one particular tree, and he he blows it completely out of proportion. And where Eve was sitting in the middle of a garden that God had given all of it to her with the exception of one tree, Satan says, how come you can't eat of any of these trees? He changes generosity to stinginess. Now, this happens in politics all the time. I was trying to think of a way to, to explain this. This happens in politics all the time. I, I want to hand it to our, uh, our state representatives because they do everything they can to balance Missouri's budget. Missouri is actually one of the few states in the United States that's doing okay financially, even in these difficult times right now, because folks are trying to be very careful in Jeff City about the way they spend our money. But how often have you heard something like this? You know, we're trying to balance our budget, but what that actually equals is our state representatives really hating poor people. What that really means is that our our, our state representatives have no interest in your children getting an education. And responsibility, fiscal responsibility, has been turned into a mean-spirited attack, a personal attack aimed at you and your family. It happens in politics all the time. And in this conversation, that's exactly what Satan is doing. Satan knows that God has given them every tree in the garden. Satan's not confused on this point, but rather he's seeking to turn in Eve's mind ever so slightly the question of whether God can be trusted. You see, at the very root of evil, I believe, is finding fault with the character of God that leads us to distrust His loving intentions. And so Satan starts out the conversation by saying, you don't say, is God really that big of a cheapskate? Boy, if He is, I just don't know that I'd want to be in relationship with someone like that. The second thing Satan does in this conversation, is, or the second thing that happens, this is Eve's response, is, is a magnification of the strictness of God. Look at verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve is already on slippery ground. She's already beginning to misrepresent what God has said to her. God didn't say, you shall not touch that tree. He said, don't eat of the fruit of that tree. The day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will die. God never said to Adam and Eve, you can't touch it. You can't draw near to it. You can't go up and look at it and study it and learn something about it. He simply warned them against eating. And Eve magnifies the strictness of God. She she misrepresents what God has said. And Eve is reconsidering in her mind 
God's motives. You can almost hear the wheels clicking. Was this command really given for my good? Or rather, is God being malevolent toward me? Is He being uh, uh, vindictive toward me? Is he, is he out for my harm? Does God want to be mean to me? Might be another way to say it. Or does He really love me? Which leads me to, uh, to think Eve is going through her mind. Can I trust God? You know, if God really doesn't have my best interest at heart, I don't know that I want to trust Him. If you know you have an enemy, if you know somebody that's out to get you, I mean, they really don't like you. Maybe it's a next door neighbor and you've had a problem over where the property line is, or maybe it's somebody who used to work for you that doesn't work for you anymore. Maybe it's a, a teacher at school that you just can't quite seem to get the A in that classroom because he or she, you know, always seems to find something critical with your work. You're real careful around that person, aren't you? You, you tend to be real careful how you interact with that person because you don't want to give them any ammunition with which they could hurt you. So you're guarded and you're careful and you're, and you're, and you don't have a trust relationship with them. And that's the seed that Satan's planted and he's gaining some ground because Eve magnifies the strictness of God to be something harmful to her instead of something life-giving. Third observation about this conversation is a softening of the warning. Again, back in verse three, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. God didn't say it. Lest you die. Now, we're going to split real small words here for a second, but it's very important. God never said to Eve, if, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and Eve, don't do that lest you die, or perhaps you might die. You open the door to the possibility of death would be what that word uh, lest means there. God never said that. God said to Eve and Adam, if you eat of that tree, the day you eat it, you will surely die. God did not mince his words. God did not say one thing one minute and another thing the next. And Eve is softening the warning almost as if she is trying to give herself permission to do something she knows in the depths of her heart she shouldn't do. Does that not happen in our lives? Do you not find times in your life when you go, I, you know what, I, I, and again, I'm going to pick on Roger a little bit, but uh, or, or uh, Rhonda yesterday morning, she probably shouldn't have said, you know, Roger, you look like you got a watermelon on your shirt. It might have been true, but it sure wasn't productive. Okay, but in her mind, she probably maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe she said, well, this might be a way to get Roger to go on a diet. <laughs> and maybe she's thinking she's got a good idea in mind, but it just didn't work out. How many times do you and I excuse our sin? How many times do you say, well, it's just a little one. It's not like I'm killing anybody. It's not like I'm really hurting somebody bad. It's just a it's just a little white lie, right? I mean, how much damage can it do? I, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to look over at that test for just a second because I really only need one answer to a question. I've studied hard. I know all the answers, but this one, so I wonder what that one is. It's just a little cheating. It won't really hurt, will it? And that's what's happening. Eve is softening the warning. Lest you die is not what God said. He said, you will surely die. And friends, I will tell you this. One thing I know for a fact, God means what he says. Now, you don't have to believe the Bible. You can walk out here and say, I think it's, you know, it's talking snake, Adam and even guard. Sorry, it's not for me. You can choose to believe that, but do not, please, change what God has said. Because God will not stand for his word to be changed. Because I think he's a good parent, quite frankly. I sat in on the parenting class this morning, and we talked about how important it was that your children knew that you mean what you say. That that's simply a very good parenting skill. That if your kids know that when you say, don't play out in the street, that you mean it. So if they play out in the street, you correct them. They get a timeout, they get a spank, and whatever you don't say to your child, don't play in the street. And then when they play in the street, say, oh, well, that's okay. You will ruin that child. You will harm that child. They won't know when they can trust you and when they can't trust you. So later on when you say they're 17 years old, don't go out drinking with your friends. They go, ah, they don't mean it. 
That's bad parenting. Good parents, loving parents, mean what they say and they don't say what they don't mean. And when God said, you will surely die, he wasn't messing around. He was trying to protect Adam and Eve. He was being a good father. And Eve, by softening the warning, opens this door. It's almost as a child testing whether or not their parent really means it. Opens this door that allows evil and disobedience to come and reign in her heart and in Adam's. One more observation about this text is simply this. Judgment rejected and revised. Look at verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Notice at least Satan has the good sense to quote God directly. I mean, there's only one person that gets it right, so to speak, in this, in this sentence, and Satan quotes it exactly how God said it. No, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Judgment rejected and revised. You will not die. God is a liar. Forget that. That's not going to happen to you, Eve. It simply isn't true. It simply won't happen. God's Word is worthless. More than that, He's purposely trying to hold you from what you rightly deserve. If you eat of this, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Eve, what could be wrong with that? Isn't that a great gift? Why didn't God give you that gift, Eve? Why didn't, he, why didn't he just hand it to you in the first place? What do you think he's trying to do? Why is God so mean-spirited? He rejects the judgment of God. You won't die. And then he says, Eve, actually, you sit in judgment of God. You get to decide for yourself what's right and what's wrong. You get to decide God's motives. You don't, get, you don't have to ask God what his motives were, what his intentions are. You get to decide for that self by simply reaching out and taking the fruit and eating it. God's judgment's rejected, and then it's reversed so that we actually sit in judgment of God. As I was thinking about this conversation, I wrote down some questions that Eve never asked that I thought probably should have come to her mind at some point or another. Here's a couple of them. Why didn't Eve say, why should I trust you over God? (laughs) Didn't it dawn on Eve to say, you know, I'm living in a pretty good place, and, and I don't know that I can take your word for what it says. Who are you? And do you mind if I check your references? That, I think that would have been a fairly good question to ask. Okay, why, why are you so worried about what I eat or what I don't eat? Okay, that, that might not have been a bad question to ask. Why is a snake talking to me in the first place? <laughs> I, I mean, that, that might have been a question that should have crossed her mind, but none of them did. None of them did. But they ate, and the death march began. Eve had a free will. She could have refused. She could have said, you know what? Satan, I, I, I heard about your tricks and I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Adam was standing right there, as we'll, as we'll see in just a moment. He, he was not too far off. Adam couldn't play, plead ignorance. couldn't say I wasn't around. Adam could have said, hey, Eve, hold the phone. Before you get a bite of that fruit, you know, God's going to be coming through in a little while. Let's just double check with him before we do anything. None of that. Verse. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree would be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she all gave, also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Kenneth Matthews says this in his commentary about this particular passage. The woman listened to the serpent. And the man listened to the woman. But nobody listened to God. Friends, I couldn't put any better than that. That's the root of evil. <laughs> nobody listened to God. The origin of evil in this world is not God's doing. The origin of evil in this world is not God's inability to care for and to change that which has gone wrong.
but rather it is man's mistrust of God's good and gracious character and the validity of His Word. What does that have to do with you and me? Well, the continuation, continuation of evil right down through the ages, it didn't stop with Adam and Eve. We're going to spend the rest of the study in Genesis looking at all the ramifications, both the negative and, and the positive as God, God brings about the plan of salvation. But we're going to see all the negative things that happen because of Eve's decision. This evil continues on in the world today. And again, it's not because God doesn't care or because He can't fix it, but it's our stubborn refusal to trust Him. Adam and Eve's choice marked both human the birth of human evil, and the incubator for every man-made ill that has been on the planet since that time. I have a mole trap in my backyard. It's the greatest mole trap in the history of mole traps. It's really good. I got another one uh, yesterday afternoon. I've probably killed eight moles so far. I got it at, um, um, what's the store across from the farmer's market in Kirkwood? OK Hatchery, thank you. Shout out to OK Hatchery. Go there. they got the greatest mole traps in the history of the world. I'm going to go by there and tell him he owes me some for everyone he sells this next week. Phenomenal. I got one yesterday afternoon right as, as Cindy and I were, were uh, getting ready to go to a, to a uh, get-together last night. And uh, I pulled it up out of the ground. And you could tell when the, when the trap pops up, that's when you know there's a mole in there. So I ran over. And I grabbed it and I popped it up. And Cindy's overlooking in her flowers. She's got flowers right by my house. And I go, I, you know, I'm the male hunter-gatherer, right? You know, okay. Look what I got. <laughs> Look at this mole. Isn't this cool? You know, and the mole, dead mole is really not a very pretty thing to see. But I'm like, and she's, Cindy's looking. She's like, why are you showing that to me? <laughs> why, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? Just get rid of it, please. And I'm not picking on my wife at all because that was the right thing for her to say. But I think sometimes that's how we want to approach this conversation. God, I don't, I don't want to know about evil. Just get rid of it. Can we just pretend like it's not a problem? The problem is if you don't kill a mole and you don't identify it as a mole and you don't, don't take care of your yard, your yard is going to look like there are a bunch of moles living there. And it's going to be a wreck. So sin does in your life. You can't pretend sin doesn't happen. You can't pretend there isn't evil in the world. You can't pretend that there isn't evil in the heart of your own soul. And Scripture at least does us the kindness of saying it's our responsibility. It's our choice. The choice that Eve made, the choice that Adam made, comes right down to this very day, which means it's a spiritual issue. Every problem facing the world has as its root a spiritual issue because every problem in the world is man-made. Every ethical problem in the world, every moral problem in the world is a man-made problem because your heart is flawed and my heart is flawed. Every family issue, every marriage issue, every educational issue, every business issue has as its root the spiritual brokenness of men and women like you and me. And the beginning of this process, friends, is that we must see ourselves for who we are. I don't want to hold the mole tray up this morning. I would have much rather painted a, a, a prettier picture. And I was thinking about how I could get out of this sermon, and I know a lot of you right now are thinking, how is he going to get out of this sermon? And we wish he would. Let's move it along, okay? I know the time is getting on here. But there isn't any good news at the end of the sermon. Because Scripture doesn't give us any good news yet. So I'm going to stop where Scripture stops. And I'm simply going to ask you this morning, so I'm going to ask myself, to be willing to look in my own heart and see what's really there and see it for what it is. Because actually, that's the first step. To salvation. Let's pray.